Uh, if you're new, welcome. My name is Steve, one of the pastors here. Uh, you picked a great Sunday to join us. It's Palm Sunday. Uh, so what a great opportunity here. This is Holy Week. I'm sure many of you are picking up books that kind of take uh, you through a journey of Jesus's final seven days. But uh, when you preach uh, this section, and we're going to take a break from Luke here just for a minute, and we're going to look at Matthew's uh, recording of Palm Sunday, uh, Matthew's recording of Jesus's crucifixion scene on Good Friday, and then Matthew's recording of Jesus's resurrection. Uh, so we're going to spend just three of these next consecutive messages here in the book of Matthew. Um, so let me, let me ask you just to do a couple things for me uh, as a church. Uh, we are consistently uh, watching our numbers grow, as you can tell, by looking around this room. Our balcony is getting ready to be full, uh, and we're facing some growth pressures um, really on a variety of fronts, and our whole team is sort of uh, thinking and planning and strategizing to figure out how we can, in the most helpful way possible, figure out issues like parking, which if you haven't parked downtown, uh, it's quite an experience, uh, especially on Sunday. We have uh, two great surface lots in the Calhoun parking lot and in the Henrietta lot. On Sundays, parking around the city is free. We also have an opportunity for you to park in the Galliard Auditorium, which is just kind of 400 yards that way. Um, so uh, as we're trying to make uh, space for people to come in, as you're coming in and maybe you arrive early, one of the things you hear Jared say every Sunday is please help scoot in if you're on the floor. If you find your way to the balcony because you love being up high, that's awesome. But if you sit in the balcony, you know the balcony is kind of hard to navigate. So uh, we got like pinch points in the balcony where it's hard for people to get in. If you come in late, you sit right in those pinch points, uh, you get like you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten people trying to step over you in a super awkward way. So if you sit in the balcony, we would ask you to just kind of when you arrive, move in toward this side so that you and I can have a real intimate Sunday. Okay? That's the goal, really. is that Because what I preach is really for you, and I want you closer to me right here. This is where I want to see you. Uh, no, so we just, we want you to kind of let you know that, hey, we're, if you can park in the Galliard and you're, uh, it's getting ready to be 115 degrees for the next nine months, and if you want to park in the Galliard, we would love uh, that you do that so we can open up our lots for people who have small kids, those who are pregnant, those who have uh, a hard time making their way across the cobblestone sidewalks and streets and all that over there. So we're trying to get people as close as possible. So help us in that. If somebody asks you to move in, please be kind to them. Don't cuss at them on a Sunday. I appreciate that. Uh, but uh, we're just excited for the opportunity to help more and more people take their next step with Jesus. So part of that is us being a welcoming and hospitable church and thinking about more people than just ourselves and our pews and where we sit and who we sit next to. You with me? All right. So take that as an encouragement to help us um, introduce people to Jesus on Sunday morning. Okay. Uh, Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, uh, when you pre, you know, you have two major holidays in the Christian religion. The coming of Christ um, through his incarnation. Uh, and we talk about that at Christmas. Thank you. Okay, good. You're going to embarrass me in front of the bridge run folks. Okay. The second one we talk about is at Easter. Uh, and as I got into all of the uh, Gospels recount both Jesus' entrance into the world and Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. It's not a small portion of your Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record what happens on what we call Palm Sunday, or if in your Bible it may be titled the Triumphal Entry. Uh, and it's an important section of your Bible. Uh, Matthew's, if you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it with me and turn to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew, the very first book in your New Testament, Matthew 21. <clears throat> I'll, uh, that's where we're going to be here this morning. We're going to be in Matthew 21, 1 through 11. Uh, if you've read the Gospels uh, and you read through the, the accounts, it really in any of the Gospels, you'll come across something that seems a little weird in Jesus' ministry. Uh, I read through the whole book of Matthew this week looking for this particular event to happen, and I found it at least five times in Matthew's account, Jesus will tell somebody that he does a miracle for, or tell the disciples uh, to not tell anything about what just happened, 
and say nothing about either the miracle or the truth that he's just taught them. And it's somewhat of an odd minor chord as you read through Matthew's, at least Matthew's gospel. As I said, you can read it through on your own this week and find how many times Jesus um, decides to intentionally silence either the, uh, he'll heal a leper uh, and tell them don't say anything. He'll tell the disciples, hey, don't say anything. And that the disciples even will say like, we didn't understand what Jesus was talking about until after his resurrection. Uh, but then when you get to Matthew chapter 21, Jesus does something for us that uh, is intentionally, um, I'm, I'm not sure what the word is. Let me, let me try to think of the word. He, he kind of, um, he intentionally demonstrates something about himself. And it, it, this is, as we say, with, with Palm Sunday, it's a pretty visible miracle. It's, it's, there's a declaration that happens in Matthew chapter 21 for us to intentionally see something about Jesus that he wants us to see. Where up to this point, he'll, he'll silence people and quiet them, but not in Matthew 21. In Matthew 21, Jesus makes a point of intentionally fulfilling a biblical prophet's uh, foretelling of who he is. And he says essentially nothing about it except to say that this is done to fulfill Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And that's what you're going to have here in Matthew chapter 21. So the question we have to ask and answer as we wrestle with a text like Matthew chapter 21 is who do you believe Jesus to be? If I were to ask you just, you know, take three minutes and write down the top three things that are characteristics about Jesus, we would get a variety of answers in the room. Things that for us pop off the top of our head. You may think of, well, I think of his miracles, or I think of his, his teaching and preaching, or I know he uh, calmed the wind and the waves, and I know he healed the blind man. He did all of his great preacher, and we have all sorts of kind of ideas in our mind about who Jesus and what he is like. But this text is very, very explicit because Jesus makes sure, and Matthew makes sure that you know one particular thing about Jesus on Palm Sunday. That when the triumphal entry happens, Jesus says, I am showing you one big idea about who I am. And it comes out here in Matthew chapter 21. So the question is, not only what do you think Jesus is like, but what does Jesus say he's like? Don't you think that's important to know? If Jesus were to tell us, here is who I am, what would he say? And in this text, we're going to have that moment where Jesus in intends to show us something about himself that perhaps might not be in your top three. It might be something you easily overlook. It might be something you neglect in your understanding of Jesus and who he is. So Matthew 21, 1 through 11, that's where we're going to go. You with me? Let's pray. Father, for these few minutes as we look into your word, we pray that you might shape us and change us. That you might conform us into the image of your son. That for those of us who have a skewed understanding of Jesus and who he is and what he has said and what he has come to do, that that fog of, of um, mystery would be replaced by absolute clarity through the power of your word. So we pause and pray for your word to give light to our eyes, to understanding to our hearts, that we might gain a greater appreciation for who he is and what he's like. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, Matthew 21, verse 1. Y'all there? It'll be on the screen behind you too, uh, if you need that. Matthew 21, verse 1. <clears throat> now when they drew near to Jerusalem. Now they is, uh, I preach about every two words here, if you're new. Uh, they is an important plural pronoun because of what has just happened in the previous paragraph. If you look just in the previous paragraph of Matt, the end of Matthew chapter 20, you'll see that Jesus is leaving a place called Jericho. And he's leaving Jericho and a, and a huge crowd is surrounding Jesus. In fact, on his way out of Jericho, there are two individuals who cry out, have mercy on me, Jesus, son of David, and Jesus does a miracle and heals these two blind men. And it seems as Jesus is now turning his face to head toward Jerusalem to what will be his ultimate crucifixion, betrayal, and death, that there begins to be a rising crowd who's interested in what Jesus is doing and where Jesus is headed. So this crowd leaves Jericho with Jesus. Jericho to Jerusalem is about a 15 to 17 mile uphill walk. 
So everybody has got to get real interested in Jesus to walk 15 to 17 miles uphill. So they leave Jericho and they begin to draw near to Jerusalem. They're at the end of this journey. They come to Bethpage, which is a city on the eastern side of Jerusalem, near with the Mount of Olives, where Jesus will be crucified. And they're just getting ready to head into the city with this large crowd, where Jesus decides to send two disciples to do something, which picks us up here in verse 2. Now, Jesus is intentional about this. He doesn't send the disciples arbitrarily. He has an errand that's important for the disciples to carry out for him. And you, you see what it is here in verse 2. Here's what he says to them. Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. So just for those of you who are not an, into animal husbandry, you have a donkey, which is the mama, and you have the colt, which is the baby. Two animals. Am I right? I'm not in animal husbandry either. Are you with me? Young, old donkey, young donkey. Okay. You'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Okay? Pretty clear? Disciples know what they need to do. Verse 3, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now imagine with me just for a second. You've never been to Beth Page, and I haven't either. But imagine somebody, two guys, walk into your front yard, and they get in your car. And they are, as you are on the phone with the police, as you watch these individuals back out of your driveway, you are giving the names and of these individuals who are taking your car. And one of the guys rolls down the window, leans his arm out and goes, hey, the Lord needs it. And you go, oh, no big deal. The Lord, I, got, I understand. Matthew gives you zero details about this entire encounter, which to me is fascinating. We don't know really anything. Did Jesus prepare this individual? Was this individual who owned donkeys ready for this? Was this a, a somewhat of a social miracle? Or the disciples don't know who it is that lives in Bethpage. They arrive, they see a donkey immediately, they decide to take it, they give the answer, which is apparently the magic password, the Lord needs it, try it this week, maybe it works for you. <laughs> And he says, this individual will let you have them at once. Now, Matthew inserts an editorial comment for us on what is most certainly, at least, it, you know, if nothing else, a weird semi-miracle. And what Matthew does is give us verses 4 and 5. But, but Matthew does it as in, a, in a way to interrupt the narrative. So what I want to do is just take 4 and 5 out for a minute. And we'll kinda, we're going to come back to it at the end. Don't worry. But I want you to watch the flow of the narrative without Matthew's interpretation. Because Matthew's interpretation, this entire passage is incredibly important. But you're not going to feel the punch of why Matthew's interpretation and Matthew's comment on what's happening here is important until we see all of the other pieces in the story. So we'll come back to four and five, but I want you to feel the flow of what's going on. The disciples are sent into the village. They give the password. They get the donkeys. They bring them back to Jesus. Here's verse six. You with me so far? You got verse six? Verse six. The disciples went and did as Jesus has directed them. I'm not going to spend a lot of time preaching on that, but has Jesus ever asked you to do something that don't make sense? How are the disciples obedient? They did exactly what Jesus said, said the same thing that Jesus wanted them to say, and came back with exactly what Jesus needed them to come back with. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them. Verse 7, they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Now, what we have in the crowds at the end of Matthew chapter 20 following Jesus, watching his miracles of giving the blind men sight, that whole group of people is somewhat removed from the first part of this narrative. We don't see them. They come back on the scene here in verse 8. So we have a private moment between Jesus and his disciples, Matthew's interpretation of that, and then we have the crowds that kind of come back into our literary purview. We start to see them once again after this moment between Jesus and his disciples. 
Verse 8, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now, the, the throwing down of a cloak is not totally clear in the scriptures. It happens back in the book of Kings when a new king is uh, anointed by um, Elisha. He anoints this king named Jehu and all of the people around Jehu is a military commander and all of the people around Jehu take off their cloaks and lay them at his feet. It's a sign of submission. It's a sign of recognition that I am going to follow this individual with my whole life. And then second, you have people who cut down the trees. Now, uh, Matthew doesn't include the fact that these are palm trees. John does, but Matthew doesn't here. So we call it Palm Sunday because in John, John uses the term that they cut down palm trees, palm fronds, and lay them in front of Jesus. So whether it's a nationalistic impulse or urge, which some commentators believe it is, a sign of victory as they lay these palm branches down, as we lay our whole life down in front of Jesus, Jesus rides on this colt next to its mother, and the whole crowd throws their cloaks and branches on the ground. Verse 9, the crowds that went before him and that followed him. So where is Jesus? Right in the middle, with crowds ahead and crowds behind. And in the center of this parade, you have these loud, boisterous chants, this loud, rising praise happening. And what they say is, is very important for us just to, to mention and to comment on, because in Matthew, there are two Old Testament passages that he uses here. One is this one here in Psalm 18, 118, and the other one we'll see here in a moment is from Zechariah chapter 9. Now, keep your finger in Matthew 21 and turn back with me to Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a longer psalm, but I just want you to show you here what, what it's saying. Now, if you look at the, you've got your finger in both places, Matthew 21 and Psalm 118. Well, in Matthew 21, here's what verse 9 says. The crowds went before him and that those that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, the son of David in the mouths of the crowd comes from what the blind men have just said in the previous paragraph. For the crowds to say that he is the son of David is to point to the one true Davidic king, the one true ruler who God has promised from 2 Samuel chapter 7 to be the one that will rule over his people. And the whole crowd explodes with this testimony of, of yelling and shouting, Hosanna. Now, Hosanna is a Greek, what's called a transliteration. They take two Hebrew words and smash them together and put them into Greek. But it comes from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. So just scan with me Psalm 118. Just take a look at what's in front of you there in your Bible. You see how the beginning of the psalm starts with his steadfast love endures forever. You see that? Verses 1 through 4 have that refrain that's happening. The end of the psalm says something similar. Look at the end in verse 29. Give thanks to the Lord for he's good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Well, that's an important thing to remember about God. Amen? That the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It endures forever and for always. And then in the middle of the psalm, we have the psalmist writing about his experience with God, which happens in a lot of the psalms. In fact, this psalmist will call God his helper two different times. He'll recognize some things about God. Verses 8 and 9, better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in men. Better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. In 10 through 13, he's talking about the pressure from all the nations coming against him. Verse 14, the Lord is my strength, my song, he's my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. God does some stuff. And then you'll see the next run of verses there, 17 down to 24. You might even uh, recognize a verse that Jesus uses later in Matthew 21, that the stone the builders has rejected has become the cornerstone or the capstone. This is the Lord's doing in verse 23. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Now, here's what the crowds shout. They're shouting verses 25 and 26. Look at how verse 25 starts. Save us, we pray, O Lord. That's the Greek term, Hosanna. Save us, 
is the word H-O-S-H-I. We pray is O-N-N-A. And they smash them together and they go, Hoshana, save us, we pray. Oh Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Now keep your finger there and go look at Matthew 21 verse 9. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Similar to what the angels spoke to the shepherds. Glory to God in the highest. So the whole crowd is filled with this anticipation, this forward-looking joy, this constant refrain of Hosanna to the son of David. But any time you read New Testament and you have Old Testament quoted, you have to look at both places because did you see what the crowd did not say? The crowd did not say, and this helps us to interpret what's happening in the crowd, the crowd did not say, oh Lord, give us success. It's implied because it's in the passage and the very phrase between 25 and 26 is this expectation of success. You have areas in your life where you're praying for success. Where you're praying for God to do something that you can't do. Where you're praying for God to do something educationally, vocationally, relationally. where you have hope that God might intercede in a way that would only show that it's God and it's not you. Then you feel the fervor of the crowd. You feel the anticipation of the crowd who has just observed Jesus healing the eyes of men who are blind. And as they begin to rise and they walk together, they begin to arrive on the scene in Jerusalem. And everyone is shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, son of David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, do you think the crowd had expectations? Do you think the crowd was filled with expectations? Do you think the crowd thought something was going to happen that they'd never seen before? Do you think the crowd was filled with hope and longing to see what Jesus might do? Now come back to Matthew with me. See, this crowd is longing for success. They're longing for something to be different. They're longing for Jesus to do something that would change their circumstances. And we know from the political time in which they lived that they're still under the thumb of Rome and that Jesus, this wandering prophet, has been doing things that nobody else can do. They've been seeing things and hearing stories and reports going out about who he is and the kind of teaching he's bringing and all of the evidence that he is worthy of putting our hope in him. And in a strange literary fashion, again, Matthew removes the crowds. Do you see verse 9, 21, I'm sorry, 21 verse 10? We start with Jesus and the disciples. The crowds are introduced. They're chanting, yelling, screaming. Hundreds, if not thousands of people following Jesus ahead and behind. And Matthew, in a weird literary move, reduces the entire parade to verse 10. And it says who? And when he entered Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? What, what is Matthew doing? Matthew is, is forcing our perspective, isn't he? He's forcing us to put our eyes on the singular individual in this passage. In fact, Matthew is so disciplined in his account of this event that he leaves so many questions unanswered. Who was the guy who owned the donkeys? Don't you want to know that? Don't you want to know his backstory? 
Why is there a donkey and a colt? What were the names of the two disciples that he sent in? There are no proper nouns in this entire passage except for Jesus and David. Nobody else is named. It's a mass of humanity. Crowds following, chanting things, quoting the Bible. And Matthew refuses to give you details that I think would be really interesting to know. Rather, Matthew forces your perspective to solely consider him. Solely consider that he enters Jerusalem. No other disciples, no other crowd, not even the donkeys who are mentioned only three times in this passage in all the book of Matthew. The whole thing gets pushed away and you watch him enter Jerusalem. Why is that important? Hang on. Now the whole city was stirred up. From what we can tell, Jesus arrives from Jericho with a giant crowd in front of him. And Jesus and this crowd enters into Jerusalem. And Jerusalem's response is what you have here in verse 10. The whole city was stirred up, saying, who's this? Now that's kind of an anticlimactic thing to say, isn't it? Isn't that weird? I mean, Jesus had a ministry of three years. Jesus has been in Jerusalem before. But Jesus enters in with all of these people shouting Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna in the highest. Oh Lord, save us. Here is the one in whom we're putting our hope. Our whole anticipation is in this individual. And Jerusalem's response is, huh? Who's outside? What's he doing? Why are they chanting? Why is there a parade here? Why are there so many people yelling? What has been going on? Who is this person? And what makes it even more confusing, apart from the fact that Jerusalem has a strange response, is the crowd's response who's been following Jesus. This crowd's been singing worship songs for 15 miles. And they arrive in Jerusalem, and would you agree that crowds, thousands of people together chanting are not known for their theological clarity? Would you grant me that? That people are you know, kind of swept up into, the, what are we doing? We're going where? Uphill? That's fine. Let's go uphill. Where, what are we singing? Hosanna? Let's sing that. Let's sing Hosanna. Let's, go, let's sing it again. Who's in the middle? I don't know. Lots of people. Let's go. And this whole crowd is growing with anticipation as they enter into Jerusalem. Everybody's cheering. Everybody's singing Old Testament psalms. Jerusalem doesn't know what's going on. The whole city is stirred up, though. They've got no idea what Jesus is doing or why he's even here. And then the crowd that's been following Jesus, you expect them to give absolute theological precision, and they don't give it. Look at verse 11. And the crowd says, this is the prophet Jesus. We were just singing a song with son of David. Everybody was singing it. Did you forget? So you can feel this chaotic scene where nobody really knows what's going on. Why are we here? I don't know. I was following the crowd. I just got in line. I thought it was something good happening. We're on a long walk. Everybody's singing. It looks like a great scene. Let's all sing. Let's celebrate. He can have my cloak. I don't care. How about a branch? Let's use branches. And we all arrive in their response in verse 11, this is the prophet Jesus. And they don't, they, the crowd says something that to the Jewish city of Jerusalem, who knows that the Savior is to be born in Bethlehem, this city is going to respond with exactly what you, what you would know is going to happen in the remainder of this story. They're going to respond with rejection because what they say, what the crowd says as Jesus steps foot in Jerusalem is that Jesus is from Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is only mentioned two times before this in the whole book of Matthew, and it's mentioned back when Jesus fulfills the prophecy that he must be from Nazareth, which isn't necessarily an Old Testament prophecy. What it is is an Old Testament uh, anticipation that Jesus will be from a place that nobody appreciates. It's that Jesus will be from the wrong side of town. It's that Jesus won't have a great reputation that according to Isaiah 53 he will have no esteem and while the prophet I'm sorry while the crowds may consider Jesus a prophet while they may even know his name the best that they come up, can come up with is that Jesus is from a place that nobody finds impressive 
So much so that commentators say that if you were from Galilee and you were to arrive into Jerusalem, you would be considered an out-of-towner. There's such a stark difference between who they expect this individual to be. Jerusalem doesn't get it. The crowds don't get it. And that's where Matthew comes in. See, the crowds at the end of this story don't even say what the blind men did in the previous paragraph. At the end of Matthew chapter 20, the blind men call Jesus the son of David. The crowds, by the time they arrive in Jerusalem, while even singing the songs, don't recognize him as the son of David, which tells you the crowds are blind, which tells you Jerusalem is blind. The crowds have huge anticipation in Jesus, but they have it in him for the wrong reasons. They don't recognize who he is or what he has come to do. Now, let's go back up in the paragraph. You with me so far? You okay? Let's go back up to see what Matthew tells us, what details Matthew gives us for us to interpret this passage correctly. Let me say this just as a side point. For you to really understand who Jesus is is going to require lots of time in the scriptures. No matter what idea you came in with here today about Jesus, typically, our understanding of Jesus is informed by our parents, by our experiences, by our circumstances, by the difficulty that we've seen in life, by hard seasons. And what we have a tendency to do is to form our theology based upon our experiences rather than to form our perspective on Jesus from his word. And what Matthew does in this passage is give you an Old Testament passage for you to see what Jesus wants you to see about himself here. Okay? Look at verse 4 together with me. We all, we all go back up. We finished verse 11. Let's come back up to verse 4 together. This. Now the this is the story of the disciples and the donkeys, right? So Jesus intentionally decides after 15 plus miles of walking uphill to do something that you would expect him to do at Jericho. But he doesn't do it at Jericho. Do you want to walk 15 miles uphill or do you want to ride 15 miles uphill? I know what I want to do. But Jesus, in all of the biblical literature, in all of the gospels, is never recorded as riding ever except till here. Well, why is that? Why would Jesus walk 15 miles uphill and then only right as he gets within a mile of Jerusalem tell the disciples to go get him a donkey? Unless Jesus wants us to see something about himself that we can't see without Matthew's insight. So this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Now the prophet who he's going to quote is Zechariah. And he's going to quote from Zechariah chapter 9. Now don't need to turn there. Zechariah chapter 9 has to do with judgment upon Israel's enemies. And it's judgment upon the enemies in a way that you don't quite expect. Because the judgment upon the enemies comes in what Jesus is about to do here. So this was done, Matthew says, this riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey, for a very particular reason to fulfill one very important Old Testament passage. So does Jesus know what he's doing? Say yes. He knows exactly what he's doing. Does Jesus know what this is going to communicate? Say yes. He knows what this is going to communicate. He knows that what he is about to do is to make visible something that you would not see unless Jesus did it. So let's see what he quotes. Matthew 21, verse 5. Say to the daughter of Zion. Now Zion is an Old Testament reference to the city of Jerusalem. It was actually called Zion, the stronghold of Zion, before David took it and made it Jerusalem. So all of what Zechariah is saying, he's saying to Jerusalem himself. So here comes Jesus riding on a colt, the foal of the donkey, coming into the city. The whole crowd is confused. The city itself doesn't know who he is. But Jesus says, Matthew tells us, this prophecy is given to fulfill a particular message that Jerusalem ought to hear. 
Jesus is putting something on display that Jerusalem needs to understand. And what he says here, he says to the daughter of Zion. Which makes their question, incidentally, all the way back in verse 10, kind of odd. It makes their question, who is this? Even more stark. Because this is a specific prophecy given to Jerusalem. Say to Zion, say to Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. Luke writes, when Jesus goes through the triumphal entry and Jesus looks over the city and he weeps, he says of, of Jerusalem that they did not know the time of his visitation. They didn't know. They didn't know the king had come. John puts it like this in the beginning of his gospel. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, his own people did not receive him. So Jerusalem ought to know this prophecy, right? They ought to understand that what they're seeing validates the fact that Jesus is their king. But as Jesus sits on this donkey in the midst of the entire crowd who is shouting, save us, Hosanna to God in the highest. What Jesus is doing is showing us something about the kind of king that he is. Jesus is giving us a picture for us to see something that Jesus wants to see about him. Now, when you think about kings, what comes to mind? When you think about kings, do their subjects come to them or does he go to the subjects? When you think about kings, are they the, the center of the attention or are they on the outskirts? When you think about kings, are they regal and mighty or are they humble? And Matthew places this here, this fulfillment of this prophecy, for us to see one thing that Jesus really wants us to see about himself. No matter what people are saying, no matter what their expectations are, no matter what kind of anticipation and religious fervor there is in the air, no matter what confusion is happening in the crowds, both in Jerusalem and in the ones that follow him, and even probably in the hearts and minds of the disciples, he writes... And says, your king is coming to you. And then he says, humble. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. No doubt the crowds expected Jesus to do something in Jerusalem. He expected, they expected him to bring freedom. They expected him to free them from the Romans. They expected to not be under the thumb of political powers of the day. They expected Jesus to do something to make their lives different. They expected Jesus to bring success. But in the triumphal entry, if nothing else, Jesus decides to show us what his heart is like. Why? That word humble in the book of Matthew is only used three times. It's used in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, blessed are the meek or the humble for they shall inherit the earth. But then it's used in Matthew 11. And here's what Jesus says in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am, that word, gentle or humble and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In Matthew 11, he says something about his heart. In Matthew 21, he shows you something about his heart that is very, very important to his entrance into Jerusalem. See, church, we follow a misunderstood Jesus. Do you know that? The people, the friends, the family you have when you bring up Jesus, they have some perspective on what he is like. They think he's a great teacher. They think he's got long hair. They think he's done miracles. They think he's got a great philosophy. 
They think maybe that he's come to bring economic freedom. They think maybe if their, their perspective on Jesus is that Jesus has come to solve the issues of injustice, they view him as kind of a mercenary liberator. If they think his, his primary aim is politics, that they will assign Jesus their own personal convictions and view him that way and say, Jesus must certainly agree with my political leanings. The conversations they have with their kids, the conversations I have with my kids, what kind of Jesus am I showing them? What kind of Jesus am I talking to them about? And no matter who you are, no matter what your background, whichever your experience is, we all have a picture of Jesus in mind, don't we? We all have ways in which we operate out of this fundamental belief that Jesus is a certain way and therefore I act or react to who he is and what he says. But we need to be very careful with that because the Bible goes to great lengths to show us what Jesus is like. And in perhaps the most popular moment of his entire ministry career, when expectation and anticipation is at its highest, when the songs are the loudest, Jesus says, I'm humble. Jesus says, I'm gentle. See, a lot of times when we pray for success, we want God to fix the problems out there. You notice that? Wouldn't the world be better if Jesus fixed the world according to your standards? Come on. You think he would? You think it would? The whole world would be better if people drove like you drove. If people held the convictions that you held. And in the midst of all of this confusion and kind of misapplying our expectations to Jesus, he ought to be this way. He ought to do this thing. He ought to fulfill this prayer. He ought to be what I want him to be. He ought to fulfill all the anticipation and all the prayers and all the things that I want him to do. When we do that, we have a tendency to take Jesus and put him on our side and say the problems are out there. But when Jesus enters into a Jerusalem that misunderstands him, when Jesus enters in to Jerusalem and Matthew forces us to look at him alone, we blow away the fog of these misapplied titles to Jesus and Jesus wants us to see that he is gentle and that he is lowly. And that Jesus intentionally comes into people who don't understand him. They, he, he moves toward people who have a misunderstanding of what really he's come to do. See, if we're honest with ourselves, we are not the people that we want to be. There are things that we believe and things that we say and things that we long for and things that we love that are broken and twisted and dark. And if we're honest about that spiritual reality that exists just below the surface, when we come to Jesus, we're in a far different posture than everybody here. Everybody here wanted Jesus to fix stuff out there. And Jesus answers and says, I'm gentle and I'm humble. Why? Because when Jesus comes to fix the real problems in your life, you need a Jesus that is gentle. Who wants a harsh surgeon? Who wants a dentist who don't use Novocaine? <laughs> Why? Because it's tender in there. It's tender in the areas of my life that I don't want people to see. It's tender in my heart when I love the wrong things and have failed expectations and I'm not the person I want to be. It's tender in there when I'm exposed as a sinner. And what I need outside of all the worship songs that say these true things about Jesus what, that are really masking an expectation that what I really want is God to be powerful and give me success. What God gives us is not that. He gives us a humble and gentle Savior who can handle the most wounded, shameful, wicked, sinful parts of our hearts. And no doubt there were people in the crowd who said, I don't understand what's happening. And Jesus said, I've come for them. And there were people in the crowd who sang loud and thought they knew what they were singing. And Jesus says, I've 
come for them. And there are people even in this room, as you think about who Jesus is, maybe you're just apathetic and you go, well, who is he? Who cares? And I would say that Jesus has come for you. There are people who have a small view of Jesus, and I would say he came for you. There are people who hate the things that Jesus tells them to do. And I would say he came for you. Because Jesus is absolutely clear on who he is. He's absolutely clear on what he came to do. And it doesn't depend on your understanding. It doesn't depend on whether or not the crowd has him right. It doesn't depend on whether or not Jerusalem understands him totally as their king. Jesus knows exactly what he's come to do. See, for any Christian in the room who's experienced what it's like to, by faith, say, Jesus, I can't do it. I'm a sinner who's fallen short of the grace of God. When you meet God like that, what you meet is a God who is gentle with sinners. You don't meet a Jesus who rides in with armor and a sword and the horse. That's in the Bible though, right? What you have is Jesus who gently is, I mean, have you ever been to a, a carnival and you have the kids who ride the donkeys? There is nothing impressive about someone riding a donkey. Not even with a saddle, with a jacket on it. Somebody riding a donkey with a cloak is not an impressive sight. But to those who are wounded and ashamed, to those who feel the burden of sin in their life, to those who don't understand everything about Jesus, but to cry out, Oh Lord, save me. And the king who comes is gentle. And the king who arrives is gentle in dealing with the sinners. Isn't that good news? See, I, I read the triumphal entry and I feel like it's titled wrong, don't you? I read it and I go, it feels like humble man on a donkey entry. I know that's not good. We, we can brainstorm a better title. I'm, I'm sorry. But I read that in the, the contrast between the anticipation of the crowd and the gentleness of Christ is weird. But it's there so that you wouldn't miss the fact that when Jesus arrives into the city, getting ready to go to the cross, preparing his head and his heart to be the sin bearer of humanity. He comes in such a way that sinners appreciate him. Jesus isn't up there. Guys, Jesus isn't up there folding his arms going like, get it together already. Do you know that? Like, that's what I'm like. I'm like, that lives in here. Does that live in there for you? You know, if people would just be more disciplined and get their together, we wouldn't have as many problems. But that's not Jesus. And I've got to, guys, I've got to wash my own perspectives on who Jesus is with passages like this. I've got to ask myself, do I really believe in a Jesus who's gentle with sinners? Imagine, Galatians 6. If you have a brother who's caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. What happens if our message to the world was that we follow a man who rides a donkey because he's really, really gentle? Would sinners be welcome here? Would people come in and not roll their eyes at people who go, you know what your problem is? I've got 18 things and you failed 14 of them but rather our message to those who recognize themselves as sinners was that they might be invited into knowing a Jesus who is gentle with them.
And see, for every Christian in this room, we didn't want him, did we? We were confused about him, weren't we? We sang the loud songs. We didn't understand what he came to do. But for every Christian in the room, their testimony is that he came for me. He came for sinners like me. He came for people who didn't understand him like me. He came to people who had high expectations for him doing better things like me. He came to fix these problems, but he came to fix the problems in me. So, on Palm Sunday, my prayer is that as you hear Hosanna to the Son of David, that that would explode out of a heart of thankfulness because of Jesus' gentleness towards you. And if you've never heard that before, if that's the first time you've heard that Jesus is gentle with those who recognize their sin and their failures, can we be the first as a church to welcome you? Would you come back? Because this is the thing that gives light and hope and health to all of our spiritual lives in the room. Amen, church? So our prayer is that we would close here today with what Psalm 118 says. Give thanks to the Lord because his steadfast love endures forever. Father, we need to be reminded of Jesus' gentleness with sinners, of his kindness and his patience and his humility. What we see in a passage like this, that he is gentle and lowly of heart, that he invites those who are burdened to take his yoke upon them and to learn from him because he's gentle and lowly of heart. For those who are in this room who've never heard that message before, I pray that you'd give light to their eyes, that faith would come alive in their heart. And they would step into a relationship with a Jesus who loves them, a Jesus who forgives them, a Jesus who took upon his brow and upon his back and in his body the wrath of God for us on the cross. And as we meditate on these realities this week, would our hearts be filled with joy and thanksgiving that we can say with confidence the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.